Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and happy Thanksgiving weekend to all of our American friends. When thinking about Thanksgiving, most of the images that first come to mind involve cramming one's face full of stuffing and turkey, but there are plenty of less conventional traditions too. Bigoted relatives, festering family feuds, the younger cousins sneaking out for a toke behind the garage, all fun traditions that the holiday just wouldn't be the same without. Am I right? Okay, I might not be American myself. In Canada, we celebrated Thanksgiving well over a month ago. But I've heard plenty about how it goes down in the States. Here in Canada, Thanksgiving tends to come and go without a whole lot of fanfare. In the States, it seems like it has a bit more presence. Parades and other festivities, sure. But what blew me away is just how much Thanksgiving-inspired horror there is out there, both in terms of tales told around the realities of the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth, that, I might add, are a far cry from the carefully tailored images we've become accustomed to seeing, and in terms of the more modern tales of terror set during this occasion. There's the obvious example that's making the circuit in theaters this year, but a quick Google search shows that it seems to be a favorite of both amateur and experienced writers alike. Who knew? Maybe that'll give you something extra to chew on this weekend if you need a little break from the family. While our tales tonight may not be specifically themed to the season, 
we do have a couple of courses to deliver that are sure to satisfy your ravenous appetites. Let's dig in, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Kathleen Palm. Kathleen Palm is a little light, a little dark, and a lot weird. She lives in an old house in Indiana, where she watches horror movies, reads weird and spooky books, and wanders through the haunted cornfields. Her short stories have appeared in Blackberry Blood, a quaint and curious volume of gothic tales, and Dark Dead Things Issue 2. Her upper-middle-grade horror book, Into the Grey from Spooky House Press, waits to enchant the creepy-loving kids. Kathleen also happens to be a slush reader here at Tales to Terrify. Children of the Night, join me for Kathleen Palm's Freckles, first published in Bloody Red Nose, Fifteen Fears of a Clown, in August 2019. Time to face it. Face him. The stripes on my pants waver as my leg bounces, the yellow, green, and purple lines locked in an epic battle. My white gloves bunch and wrinkle as I curl my fingers against the plain brown couch. The therapist's office is quiet as shelves of books silently judge. Two empty cushions sit next to me, uncaring. Even though the digital clock makes no sound, The tick-tock of time pulses in my mind. Warm light slides over the ivory walls, but the brightness doesn't reach me. I was happy to get your call, the voice solid and calm. The therapist sits across from me, her elbows resting on the padded arms of the green chair. Doc, that's what I call her, gives her glasses a tiny push up her nose. She has a name, only after a month of sessions of talking to her three times a week. I still can't remember. Her foot swings, the frayed hem of her jeans sway. Sorry it's so late, Doc. I gaze out one of the large windows, the light of the sun almost gone, but I couldn't wait. I couldn't stay locked at home with him, with the blood. Did you just come from another party? You must get a lot of work. I always see you in costume. Yeah, a party. There used to be parties. Freckles the Clown was sought after in the world of streamers and balloons. I used to make kids happy, make them smile and laugh. Until their laughter turned on me. Until my joy decayed into sadness. Until anger crept through my veins. Then he invaded my life. My mind. The cold buzz of thoughts claw at the edges of my brain. I swat at the wig that tickles my ears. After talking last time, Doc says, shifting in her seat, I was afraid I wouldn't see you again. So what brings you in? Afraid. She doesn't understand fear. But this is a safe space. In this room. On this couch. That's what Doc says. My oversized black shoes tap on the green rug covered with sweeping spirals. You're right, I whisper. I know you're right. Right about what, Jet? Doc, please! I slam my hand on the cushion. She tucks straight brown hair behind her ear. Of course. I'm sorry. Right about what? Freckles. I glance at the door. A white shield, though I'm unsure it's strong enough to keep him out. To face him. I have to face him. The man behind the mask. Yes. I tug at my shirt, bright and yellow. A happy shirt for freckles, now tainted by a stain hidden under my jacket. I reach for my face. Seven freckles dot my cheeks. Seven black spots. Seven. 
I stop myself before I touch them. I... I don't want to be this way. Why now? When I suggested you take action last time, you were... upset. You... ran away. I ran away. So why now? What happened? The blood happened. I stare at my gloved hands, remembering the mess. Remembering the scrubbing. I flex and curl my fingers. Because he... What he did. What did he do? She scoots to the edge of her seat. Maybe interested. Maybe uncertain. I want to scream. Something awful. Something horrible. Something I won't tell her. I never tell her. She should be afraid. A chuckle lingers in the back of my mind. I have to face him. So I pull my gloves off. My leg stops thrumming up and down, up and down. For a moment, I am still. I am calm. For a moment. A shudder jerks across my shoulders, shattering the composure. A serenity I don't want. Flipping my jacket open, I shove my thumbs under my suspenders, happy purple suspenders, and run my hands up and down, as if the action will make him go away. For I heard him. I heard the hiss of his breath, the intent of his heart. This isn't a good idea. I tug on my gloves, my trembling hands making it difficult to work my fingers back into their places. Doc sits back, her face twisted with concern and thought. It's up to you. It's okay to not be ready. Ready. My chin hits my chest, the blue strands of my wig falling over my cheeks. Cheeks with seven freckles, hands covered in blood. I pinch the finger of my glove. One step at a time. My gloves fall to the floor. A shadow cuts through my thoughts, sharp and cold. I shake off the shiver that oozes up my spine as the struggle of wanting to be free and needing to hide begins. The wig falls on top of the gloves, and I run my hands over my hair, short and prickly. I straighten my shoulders. A crack sounds from my neck as I tilt my head one way, then the other, aware of the door, the way out. Freckles? The voice seeps into my mind like a light in the dark. Yes, Freckles. Not the person under the mask. Not him. My shoulders slump as I drop my gaze to the swirls on the rug, like vortices waiting to swallow me. He's strong. I want to be stronger. But what if I'm not? Freckles, are you okay? Wiggling my fingers. I test that they're mine, because I hear him. Freckles? Worry lines Doc's green eyes, outlined by dark-rimmed glasses. What? Doc sits at the front of her chair, her fingers playing with the chain hanging around her neck. What's going on? Such a pretty neck. Panic runs through me like a million swords. It's him. I reach for my wig, to put it on, to silence him, to lock him away. No, it's you. Me. A part I hide, a part I hate, a part I dread. No, Doc says, leave the wig there, you don't need it. The urge to grab it and place it on my head is overwhelming, but I don't. Why don't you take off your jacket? Doc's face holds hope, encouragement. Sure. I nod, fighting the knowledge that this is wrong. My body's shaking. I slide free of the polka dot cover jacket, one arm at a time. A bit of armor gone. My mask a shield, only it doesn't hold him in. More and more he runs free. But maybe I can defeat him. Stop him. I toss the jacket over the wig on the floor. I can be free. Good. How do you feel? Doc pushes her glasses up again, her eyes alight with promise. I push my hands under my suspenders, 
setting my shoulders free of the restraints. I roll my head from side to side and tug my shirt tails from my waistband. Strong. And scared. I tap my feet on the floor, large shoes flopping, and run my hands over my thighs because of the pounding of his heart, because of the sinister nature of his thoughts, because of the growing need, his need, my need. My feet shake and wiggle as I fumble to untie the laces until a speck of red lingering under my fingernail catches my eye. I pause to pick the spot free and stare at it on my fingertip. A fragment of terror sitting on my skin, a leftover fleck of a dark moment. Freckles? Doc's eyes wrinkle with concern. A concern that pounds in my chest because of a dried flake of blood. Are you okay? Doc reaches out to console me, maybe, to offer support. Do you want to keep going? Do I want... No, I don't. I don't want to face this person under the mask. I hide him with a smile and a goofy laugh, because he does bad things. He didn't always, but he does now. His pulse pounds in my chest. His thoughts fight to strangle mine. I'm not stronger. No, no, no. I press my hands to my head, fingers digging into my skin as if I can grab him and yank him out. When I pull my hands away, the streak of white on my shaking fingers whispers of my defeat. My feet still, soles set on the floor. I flick the speck of blood from my finger. I bend to reach my shoes and my persistence unravels the strings. One shoe, then the other thump onto the carpet. The bright stars cover my socks with twinkling happiness, so I strip them off and toss them on top of the pile of clothes. A pile of me. Freckles? Freckles. I feel his battle to hide me. I run my tongue along my bottom lip, tasting the spice of fright. My bare toes press into the rug, soft and warm. I glance at the window, flexing my fingers and rolling my shoulders. The light of day completely gone. The darkness beyond turns the window into a mirror. The white face stares back at me. His face. Yet not completely white. Not anymore. I'm there, peering through the cracks. His screams of alarm press at the boundary of me. But I am stronger. How are you feeling? Doc places her pen and paper on the table beside her as she shifts forward, feet planted, ready to stand. Actually, is that blood on your shirt? Are you hurt? With a chuckle, I run my fingers over the dark stain. Hurt? No. But... But my laugh is laced with panic. With a faint, frightened cry, I stand and force my fingers into fists, because he's still here, still whining, still fighting. A flash of white in the window. His face. High-arched eyebrows, a red grin, and freckles. Shouting in rage, I drag my fingers down those white-painted cheeks. But the sobs continue. They grow stronger pushing me away. Doc stands approaching. Freckles, what is it? Her voice calm, hands outstretched in understanding. Freckles. I swipe at my face, trying to put back the white, to restore the shield. It's him. We talked about this. The person under the mask is you. I shake my head as if to rid myself of the invasion of his thoughts and emotions. No. My reflection sways in the window, the mask smeared, broken. I wipe my fingers, coated with white, over the splatter of blood on my shirt, as if wanting to paint it over, erase it. He does bad things, and I can't stop him. What could you have possibly done against this person? You are here to make people smile. I am. I was. 
The clothes and face paint remain, not a costume, but armor. And now it's almost gone. He's loud, he's angry. A sob fills my throat, a final cry of futility. I step to the window, swiping my shirt sleeve down my face. The blackness of horror washes over my thoughts. Again, my sleeve erases more of the mask. There he is, lurking under the red grin. Again. My true face revealed. The face of power. The face of revenge. The face of action. Freckles? Strong. Free. I face her. Don't. My hands close around her throat. Call me. I squeeze. Freckles! Her fingers claw at mine. Her mouth moves, trying to take in needed air. Her eyes blink in disbelief, in terror. You never helped him, you know. That stupid, frightened clown. Doc's feet thud on the floor. Her fingernails leave red welts on my skin. Her struggle weakens, then stops. Life leaves her eyes. I release her, and she crumples in a heap next to a giant shoe, a blue wig, and colorful jacket. The anger subsides, and my body trembles. I flex my fingers and wave my hands, wanting to forget the feel of her skin, of her fading pulse. He lurks in the window, his face, his smile. Dread descends like a boulder dropping from a cliff. Shoulders shaking with my sobs, I run to the pile on the floor. I don't look at Doc. Can't look at what he's done, again. I slam the wig on my head and shove my arms in my jacket. I struggle with my socks, the world blurred by tears. I grab my bag and dig for the final piece of my armor. Paint and sponge in hand, I rush to the window, slapping the color on my skin. Stroke after stroke, I hide him. I force him behind the mask of good, of light. Though there's nothing good or light about him, about me, because he'll never be gone. Lip trembling, with the final swipe I finish covering my skin with white. Hands shaking, I draw a red smile. The wavering line surrounds my frown with a lie. My knees buckle, but I fight to stand. My stomach churns. But I swallow the bile as I paint on sweeping happy brows. Finally, I add black dots. A tear falls with each. Eight now. Eight. That was Kathleen Palms. Freckles, as read by Spencer Disparty. Spencer Disparty is a professional narrator and musician from Phoenix, Arizona. He's done work for such literary podcasts as Pseudopod, Escape Artist, Starship Sofa, and here at Tales to Terrify, where he's the newest addition to our staff as an assistant editor. You can find all of his music projects on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash the Gearian Band. Thank you, Spencer. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Our second tale tonight comes from Derek Allen Jones. Derek Allen Jones spends most of his time working in a warehouse in Kansas and the rest of it writing speculative fiction. His work has appeared, or is upcoming, in Orion's Belt, Utopia Science Fiction, and Tales to Terrify, among others. Find all of his stories at DerekAllenJones.com Listen with me, children of the night, to Derek Allen Jones's The Amber Jar, a Tales to Terrify original. The jar that sat on the table was made of amber glass. In the bottom of that jar was a sprinkling of dirt, and over the mouth was a strip of beige linen, thin enough that the air could travel in and out as it pleased, but snug enough that the fireflies inside the jar could not. As the light cast by those fireflies came through that amber glass, the natural pale green color turned a warm and hearty orange. A pair of cracked lips blew a wisp of blue tobacco smoke through the linen and into the jar, and a frail and bony finger tapped a rhythm on the table. The owner of that finger began to sing a funeral hymn, in a voice so soft and low that it was hardly there at all. When the light inside the jar flashed to the rhythm of the song she sang, somewhere under cold, loose dirt, Jeremiah Stack woke up. He was as tall and as lean as he had been in life, tall enough, in fact, that his ankles had been broken to fit the corpse into the coffin. But the bones in those ankles straightened and set as he stood, and by the time he reached the woman's home, the week's worth of decay could no longer be seen in his face. His feet were bare, and he did not wear the gun for which he was known, and around his neck still hung the rope that had taken him to the grave. The rope had been cut a foot from the knot to bring him down from the gallows. But the undertaker had seen no reason to bother to untie it. The woman's door was open, and he did not pause to knock. After all, he was expected. He'd been invited. He went inside. There were two chairs at the table, and in one of them sat the woman. The other chair was empty, and he took it to be for him. As he lowered himself onto the wicker the woman would not meet his eye. 
She looked at his hands, which he laid on the table, and she devoted every ounce of will she had to steadying the muscles that tried to force her to turn away. There were words that she had prepared and practiced over the course of the preceding days, but any words that had been in her mind were lost now to the sound of the beating of her own heart. It was fear, and it was founded. There were things this man had done, some supposed and some certain, that had been the subject of both headlines and rumor for a decade by the time the rope went around his neck. The crime they could prove was murder. The crimes they could not were worse. All of them belonged to the man who now sat three feet from her. She reached for those words she had practiced, and she neared a point of panic, and it came as very little relief when the man broke the silence first. Well, he began, you called for me, so tell me why I'm here. She knew that she had to speak now, and the necessity was just enough to push the words within her reach. But those words did not carry the dignity or authority she had tried to train. Tell me what you know of death. Tell me what you've seen. It was all she could do to raise the words to a point that was barely above a whisper, and there was almost no amusement in the smile with which he answered. Why do you want to know? I'm very old, she answered, and he nodded. And I'm very much afraid I want to know what's waiting for me, if it might put my mind at ease. There was so much more she could have told him, but none of it was the kind of thing that would help to calm her nerves. None of it was anything, she thought, that this man needed to know. That she had been a thief, that she had dealt in spells, that in her youth, when she had peddled companionship to the miners heading west, she had left the resulting child on the doorstep of the church that she had watched in silence from a distance as that child grew up tall and mean under the minister's care, that she had known without ever knowing that the whispers about the fire that had burned that church were true. She wondered if the sins of the son would be judged to be her own, that she wished she could get her answers from anyone else in the world, that the ritual she'd used to call him only worked with familial blood. It might ease your mind, he told her, but I doubt it. Still, I'll tell you what I know. She released the breath that she realized now she'd been holding since she'd spoken, and she leaned in so slightly that the movement was almost imperceptible. It's difficult to speak, though, with this rope around my neck. He looked at her with expectation, and she understood exactly what that expectation was. She came around the table. And as she reached for the knot, she froze. In the dim and pulsing light that came from the amber jar, she saw the dead man's eyes, and they looked so much like her own. He winked one of those eyes, in a gesture absent any mirth, and her blood went colder than his had been only an hour before. She lowered her eyes to the knot, and she worked at it in silence. The rope was stiff, and the knot was tight, but it gave way willingly, sliding just enough for the rope to be lifted up around his head. She sat the rope on the table next to the amber jar, and she sat back in her chair, taking some hollow comfort and having the table between them again. Dying, he said when she settled, tends to be overblown. It hurts until it doesn't. That's about the long and short of it. Did you come to the hanging? His tone was casual and conversational now, and the woman found herself trying to decide if that was better or if it was worse. She shook her head in response to his question, but kept her reasons to herself. That she was afraid she would weep if she saw him hanged, and if she did, people would know. She realized now that those fears had been entirely unfounded, that she held no deeply set affection for the man across the table. The scaffold wasn't tall enough. They had to shorten the rope. The drop wasn't long enough to break my neck, so the whole thing took a while. I'm not sure how long I hung there, but it felt like too damn long. I kept waiting for the reaper. 
but I guess he figured that me and the judge had done most of his job for him because no one came for me. There was no bright light or anything like that. No hand of God or the devil reaching out to take me. Just the rope. After a while, things went dark. And when it didn't hurt anymore, I knew. What happened after? After the dying? What happened next? It wasn't the dying the woman feared, but everything that might follow. That was why she had called them here. And her fear of him was second now to the need for him to continue. He knew this, and she was sure of that by the half-grin that he gave her. When I opened my eyes again, my boots were gone. He raised an eyebrow, and he continued. Do you know what they did with my boots? She nodded. The undertaker had the boots on display in the front window of his parlor. It wasn't every day he got to bury someone famous and in a town with a small population and of no notable significance. Jeremiah Stack was as close to famous as anyone would get. Bring them to me, he told her, and I'll tell you what came next. The walk to town was a short one, an hour and a half round trip, but she didn't dawdle, because the work of the jar would only last until dawn. She stayed off of the main road and stuck to any shadows she could find. She wasn't swift, but she was silent, and that would be enough. She would get the boots, and get them home, and give them to the man, and as long as no one saw her, there would be no reason that any suspicion should fall on her. When she came to the parlor, she found with relief that the back door was unlocked, and in less time than she'd expected, the boots were in the canvas satchel that she had carried over her shoulder, and she was on her way back home. He hadn't moved from where she'd left him but he had helped himself to the stub of a cigar that she'd left sitting on the table. When she handed him the boots, she saw the first smile he'd given that didn't seem to be hiding any malice. He pulled them on, and he stomped each foot. Then he kicked them up on the table and almost seemed content. As the light from the jar danced across the toes, the woman studied the stains on the leather, wondering which of them were from dirt or grease and which were from something else. She was startled out of her ponderance when the man began to speak. It wasn't what I expected. That's the easy way to put it. His hands were behind his head now, and he leaned back in the wicker chair. No fire or brimstone or demons. There was hardly anything at all. See, I was raised by a preacher. But you knew that, didn't you? He glanced at her and she wondered if she'd imagine the accusation in his eyes. But she nodded and kept her face blank, willing to give nothing away. And that old bastard was always on about the lake of fire and the screams of the damned. And I guess I always believed him that that was how it was going to be. But there was none of that. There was just a road and nothing and me. And I stood there for a while wondering what I was supposed to do. Then there was this voice. I couldn't tell if it was from the inside or outside of my head, but that voice just said, start walking. And sure enough, I did. I started walking and I didn't stop. Couldn't stop if I tried. The rocks in that road were jagged and they tore at my feet when I walked, and I wished to God that I had my boots. Then that voice came back and made it perfectly clear that God had no time left for me. The more I walked, the more that voice said, and the more things that it told me, the more I wished it would stop. It told me there was no end to that road, and there was nothing up ahead. And after that all registered is when the voice really started digging in. It told me about how the preacher died, and I could feel the burning in my lungs. It told me the last thoughts of the first man I shot, and I felt the lead in my chest. It told me about this kid who I orphaned, and I felt her hunger in my belly. He took his feet off the table then, and leaned forward on his elbows, and his face could have very well been carved from slate when he locked his eyes on hers. It told me about my mother, and I felt her fear in my heart. She couldn't breathe or frame a thought. She grabbed the edge of the table, and she found that doing so did little to calm the spinning of the room. 
It told me you would call me here. It also told me why. Told me all the questions you would be afraid to ask. These words were met with near silence, broken by an occasional shallow, shaking breath. His brow softened only slightly when he patted the back of her hand. It's okay, he told her, though the tone of his voice did nothing that would reinforce those words. I won't make you ask out loud. The voice gave me some answers, and I'll tell you what I know. You've been a thief, and you've been a witch, and your own abandoned boy grew up to be a lot of things, a whole lot worse than that. You want to know if you're as damned as me. Now, maybe it's the preacher talking, but I don't like your chances. The voice didn't answer that one, but gave me the next best thing. See, the good Lord, he don't show much mercy when it comes to folks like me, like us. But the one thing that voice told me was that the devil loves a deal. Her pulse throbbed in her temples, and she wished she could undo it all. His words have brought no comfort. She was as sure now as she had ever been that whatever hell might be, what was waiting in her future would be no better than his. I'll never get to heaven he went on, if there's even such a thing. But I did work out a way that, at the least, I could stay here. Even after daybreak, even after those fireflies die. And I figure if it works for me, and if that's where you're headed, it might work just as well for you on the day you get there. For a moment she was hopeful, and by his smile she knew that hope must have been apparent in her face. A way out? she asked barely more than a breath, and the man's eyes widened as he nodded. It's not easy, and it don't come cheap, but it'll work if you will help me. The woman nodded slowly now. A guarantee against damnation would be exactly what she had hoped for. She knew it would be worth more than the cost, whatever that cost might be. Every ritual needs raw materials, he motioned to the amber jar. This one will take a little more than fireflies and graveyard dirt. What I need for you to get from me is the blood of the man who condemned me to die. You need the blood of the judge? The throbbing in her temples became a pounding now, as she found herself considering it, weighing a man's life against her soul. She needed time to think, but she knew that time was something of which she had very little. Within a few short hours, the sun would break the horizon and then it would be too late. Take a jar like that one, he said and fill it to the brim. Bring it back here to me, and I'll tell you how it's done. She took a knife from the counter and a glass jar from the cupboard, and she placed them into the satchel, and she turned to face the man. You're sure that it will work? she asked him. You're sure this is the way? If I wasn't sure, I wouldn't have come. I'm sure this is the way. She moved with much more urgency this time on the short walk into town. She did stop once as she came close, when the knot that was in her stomach forced its way into her throat. She stood in silence against a tree until she was sure she wouldn't vomit. But she did her best to steel herself for the deed that she had decided simply must be done. The judge slept with the window open. It was easy to slip inside. As she stood by his bed, she was all but numb to the job that was now at hand. In the lack of light, his abundant face barely looked like a face at all, almost more like a toad or a turtle, and she had killed her share of both. She rested the point of the blade just below his chin, and when she was certain of the placement, she turned her face away and pushed. The ease with which the blade went in took her by surprise. She'd used that knife on rabbits for stews and on crows when she called for rain, but she had always imagined that it would be very different somehow to use it on a man. In reality, the tactile feel was hardly different at all. The judge's eyes opened only long enough to go wide and then to close, and he made no sound loud enough to register over the sound of her pulse. She filled the jar and left the house the same way she had come in, and it wasn't until she was halfway home that she first and fully felt the weight of the thing that she had done. She did vomit then, and she fell to her knees, and she thought, if only briefly, that she might stay right there until the morning, when they would find him, 
and then find her. But she remembered that the sun was coming, and she remembered why she had done it, and she knew that if she didn't make it back, it would all have been for nothing. She forced herself up off her knees, and she willed herself to walk. She placed the jar and the knife on the table in front of the man, and she took her seat across from him as he dipped a fingertip into the jar. It's done, she said, and they were both surprised that the fear was gone from her voice. She insisted now, demanded now, that he honor his end of the deal. Tell me, show me, now, show me the way out. That's it, he answered, without looking at her. It's finished. That's everything I need. She looked at the man quizzically then, awaiting an explanation. The devil loves a deal, he responded to the question she hadn't asked. So a deal is what I gave him. To let me out, all he wanted was someone to take my place. The judge, she said, but before the word was out of her mouth, the tide of fear that had ebbed away came back in a full-force wave. The man across the table was smiling and shaking his head. I don't know what kind of man the judge was when he was alive, but the way he died don't bear any weight when it comes to which way he's going to go. I wanted him dead, and, well, two birds, one stone. You said everything seemed distant now, and every part of her was numb. Sure did. I said a lot of things. Apparently they worked. But honestly, I don't figure that folks go to hell for thieving a pair of boots or trying to make it rain. As far as you paying the bill for my sins, that's right there in black and white. Deuteronomy, he told her. Chapter 24, verse 16. The preacher was wrong about a lot of things, but he figured that one right. The things I did, the folks I hurt, that's blood on my hands. But that judge, well, take a look. She looked at her hands, through tears and a cold sweat, and she recoiled at what she saw. The blood was there, and dawn was breaking, and the dead man for whom she had called was still sitting at her table. He pulled the strip of linen off of the mouth of the amber jar, and they both watched, without a word, as the fireflies flew up out of the jar. She was motionless, breathless, hopeless then. As the man rose and walked to the door, he grinned as he pushed it open, and he let the first light of morning wash over his face. That was Derek Allen Jones's The Amber Jar as read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and narrated several audiobooks for Audible. Thank you, Dan. Well... Children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Hegra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show? that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. 
Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Desparty, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we savor the sweet taste of revenge with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.